C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, the first two books, very sci-fi, like early sci-fi. You're, this, this Englishman, Elwin Ransom, is abducted. He's taken to space. He discovers that there's alien life on Mars and Venus. And he has to stop these evil men from taking these planets, taking their resources, their citizens, and using them for their own um, corrupt gain. And so Elwin Ransom is doing all of this in space. All right? Then we get to the third book. Ransom is nowhere to be found. Instead of Elwin Ransom's space adventurer, you get Mark and Jane Studdock, who are two English intellectuals living in post-World War II England, struggling with their marriage and their careers. Quite the transition. And they discover that the intelligentsia in their local university is actually trying to hatch a plot to take over the world. Well, Mark, he gets wrapped up in the plot. Jane runs into a merry troop of Christians who are opposed to these evil men. And their main objective is, wait for it, they need to find Merlin. Yes, that Merlin, the one from Camelot, who has been resurrected and holds the key to defeating these evil men. All right? Trippy. I know. A lot of people obviously feel that there's a disconnect between the first two books and the final one, and they kind of wonder, what, what's up with this? Well, like the readers of C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, I think sometimes we might feel confused by the Tenth Commandment. I mean, we start the Ten Commandments being told to worship God, this transcendent being who is greater, more powerful, and more beautiful and holy than anyone else, and who created everything. And then we end the Ten Commandments by being told, eh, maybe you shouldn't really desire the latest model of ox. I kind of feel like God could have gone out with more of a bang there, you know? I mean, we just learned um, don't hold up the local bank. Don't get frisky with your neighbor's wife. Literally, like, don't kill people. And then we end with envy. And that seems a little, hmm, anticlimactic maybe. Well, I believe that God knew what he was doing when he put together the Ten Commandments. And I think this last commandment, commandment actually is the perfect ending and ties into the other nine very beautifully and shows that all the commandments, they kind of just stem from desire. We want what is not ours because we are not content with what God has already given us. Let's read uh, Deuteronomy 5.21. It's in your worship guide. Deuteronomy 5.21. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here today and allowing us to worship you corporately. Just please work in our hearts today that we would truly think your law is good, that your law is beautiful, sweeter than the honeycomb, um, and that we would come away from here realizing that we need to be content rather than looking at the things of others. Please work through this sermon and this, this passage, um, and just please let us learn what you would have us learn today, Lord. In your name, amen. Well, if this is your first time coming to Emmaus Road, welcome. We've been working through the Ten Commandments this summer, and we are on the final one. 
the Ten Commandments are given, just a little background, they're given in two different places in Scripture, Exodus and Deuteronomy. And the first time, God's giving the commandments to the Israelites. They just came out of Egypt. But this time, Moses is actually re-giving the commandments to the children of Israel. You see, the children of Israel had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and an entire generation that was sinful to God had died out, kind of morbid. But a whole generation has just died. And Moses is actually forbidden from going into the promised land, so he has to tell the people, remember, these, this is the law that God has given us. So remember this as you go into this land and set up a society that is supposed to reflect the covenant you share with the Creator. So that's where we are today, looking at the second giving of the law. And we're looking at thou shalt not covet. So what does that exactly mean? What exactly is coveting? Is it just the same as envy or lust? Just kind of desiring other things? Well, I think that even though this command definitely is tied into desire, desire itself is not inherently sinful. I mean, if we look throughout scripture, there's quite a few places where desire is painted in a positive light. For instance, the desire for a child. We see that with Abraham and Sarah, and we see that with Hannah. The Israelites rightly desired their freedom from oppression in Egypt. Song of Solomon shows us, rather in our faces, appropriate sexual desire. Ecclesiastes 9 shows that it's good to enjoy food, wine, relationships, good things in life. And implicit in this text is that it's good to desire those things. And let's not even get started with Proverbs, how many times it tells us it's good to plan for a good future. It's good to desire that, to desire a good name in front of your neighbors. And I think the best case in defense of desire would be our own Savior, Christ. If you look at him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was pleading with God to let this cup pass over him, he was desiring that he would not go to the cross. He was desiring that this pain and this shame would pass over him and he would not have to deal with that. Yet, even in all of that, that pleading with the Father, he did not break the Tenth Commandment. In his book, The Ten Commandments, Kevin DeYoung writes, Coveting is more than thinking, it'd be great to have a nice house. Or, I'd like to have a better job. Coveting longs for someone else's stuff to be your stuff. Coveting says, I want their house. I want his job. If only I could have what they have, then I'd be happy. So desire is not the issue here, necessarily. Rather, we should look at what do we desire, and how we desire. Do we desire our neighbor's things more than we desire our neighbor's good? Do we desire our earthly wealth and comfort more than we desire God's will for our life? This leads me to something else about coveting that I think is inherent in the sin. Uh, Coveting is inherently idolatrous. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul equates covetousness with idolatry, and that makes sense. When we covet, we're saying, well, I couldn't possibly live without fill-in-the-blank. A new house, a new relationship, better social standing, more wealth, you fill-in-the-blank. We all have a million things that we sometimes think we can't live without. And when we covet, we make our desires, which could be healthy desires, but we make these desires into gods. 
So why do we covet? It seems kind of like it's just part of human nature. We want to have things that aren't ours. We want to better ourselves, our families. But ultimately, we covet because we want what is not ours because we are not content with what God has already given us. We want what is not ours because we are not content with what God has already given us. We encounter a situation that's not to our liking. We experience some sort of suffering. We don't get our way. And we believe deep down, even if we don't admit it, that God can't possibly sustain us. We believe that God won't provide for us, and so I need to provide for myself. Or we are not content with the fact that perhaps God has provided for us, but maybe it's in a different way than he's provided for our neighbor. And so when we don't get what we want, we begin to plot and plan how we can control our own lives, how we can manipulate people and events to get what we want and set up our gods on their throne. Perhaps the, the best Disney movie to date, and this is total facts, I'm just the messenger, it's, I don't make the rules here, the best Disney film to date is 1991 movie Beauty and the Beast. All right? Um, again, it's just, it's just true. Um, we all know the story. Belle sacrifices her freedom for her father. She, she goes to live in the Beast Castle for the rest of her life. And she's told, what is it, not to go near the West Wing. West Wing. Yeah, she can go in the East Wing. Someone said that. But not the West Wing. And of course, we all know, spoiler alert, she goes in the West Wing. And we can see... As soon as she's told not to, these like wheels start turning in her head. She flatters Cogsworth, the clock butler, and says, hey, let's take a tour of the castle, you know? As, as he's explaining the flying buttresses and the Baroque decor, she's turning him towards the side of the castle with the West Wing. And then she lies to him, saying, oh, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. No, I'm going to follow you. She lies, she sneaks away, and then she breaks into the West Wing, ultimately stealing a secret that was not hers. Now, this progression of heart idol to pondering sin to acting on your thoughts, this is what we do when we covet. And this progression that, that Bell so beautifully acted out for us is actually portrayed in Scripture. We see it in Micah 2. I'll read you a verse or two. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. This, these verses, they're portraying someone who is devising evil in their mind and then acting on those thoughts. In the verse, this person is thinking on their bed. Perhaps they can't sleep at night. They're thinking about how they can get what they want. And then in the morning, they wake up, they covet these lands, these fields, this house, and then they take it. This natural progression from coveting to taking or doing. And I think this progression was in God's mind when he put the Ten Commandments together and put the tenth one at the end. You see, the other commandments, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, don't work on the Sabbath, these are all explicit, or excuse me, explicitly external commandments. Coveting, though, is purely internal. 
Now, the other commandments, of course, have internal applications. Of course, Jesus told us, you know, not to lust in your heart or murder in your heart. Um, he told us that in the New Testament. But if we look at the context of the Ten Commandments, remember, they're being given to this people to take as um, a law for their new society they're going to set up. They're going to go into this land, set up a new society, and here are just laws so that you can obey me, your God, and also have peace in the land. And so in that context, these commands, initially, they're given and they're external commands. Thou shalt not worship any other gods. Thou shalt not steal. But God, what he is saying with the 10th commandment, he's telling the people of Israel, is, as opposed to other nations near them that were all focused on externals, he's saying, not only do I not want you to murder, but I also don't, I want you to control your thoughts and your desires. I want you not even to contemplate sinning. So coveting, it's not merely desire. It's a form of idolatry of the heart, wanting what belongs to someone else, elevating your desires above your desire for God. And often it leads to external sin. Now, why then should we not covet? Why is God telling us not to covet? What's his reasoning? And I think the obvious reason uh, that we just heard was that coveting leads to external sin. And our sin affects all of society. J.I. Packer says, quote, Coveting is a root of all social evil. Desires that burst the bounds beget actions to match. End quote. Desires that burst the bounds beget actions to match. So what he's saying is that you have these desires, and they burst the boundaries that have been set up for us. What are those boundaries? They're the will of God in your life. They're his law for us, his word. That's the boundaries for our life. And so desires of ours that burst those boundaries, that go over them, they beget, they create, they reproduce external actions that match, external actions that go over those bounds. Our covetousness, which starts in our heart, it comes out and impacts others. Think about our society, right? Society, we're, we're pretty good, right? Um, it's not like we have, hmm, I don't know, murder running rampant in our largest cities or, I don't know, an entire month dedicated explicitly to sexual immorality. Oh, wait. Well, that, that's a macro issue. That's a macro issue. On the individual level, we're way better, okay? I mean, that's, that's stuff out in Washington or in other states. That's not us. It's not like we spew murder at each other on Twitter or lie and steal when we fudge our time card a little bit. Oh, wait. Well, okay, well, then where do these, these sins come from? They come, these external sins come from our heart. And remember, society, the society that out there maybe is celebrating Pride Month or is murdering or is stealing or committing these heinous acts that we would never dream of doing, society is made up of individuals, Individuals that all have desperately wicked hearts. And we have desperately wicked hearts as well. We all do what we can at varying levels to enthrone our personal idols. And that is reflected in society, macro and micro. And our love for our desires is far greater than our love for God and our love for neighbors. 
But beyond outward sin, is there another reason that God doesn't want us coveting or maybe he dislikes coveting? Well, this external sin, again, we we already talked about this, it reflects the internal heart. But what is that reflecting? It's reflecting a heart that ultimately rejects God's sufficiency. See, our love for our idols, which comes out in our actions, it trumps our love for God. Our love for God often is far less than our love for our idols. And this is the God, remember, who created this entire universe for us, that we could co-reign with him. This is the God who, when we sinned against him, he sent his son down into this universe to die for us, take our sins, and impart righteousness to us that we might be reconciled to him. That's the God that we often dethrone in place of our idols. God has done all of that for us, and he has given us much more than we could ever desire, yet we still desire more. So we shouldn't covet because it affects us and others. It overflows into external sin. It reflects our hearts that are uh, desperately wicked and, and, and um, that don't believe in God's sufficiency. Our sin reflects a heart that prefers idolatry to the riches that Christ wants to bless us with. Okay, so how then do we not covet? Well, coveting is a negative command. Thou shalt not covet. But I think that there's a corresponding positive command in this scripture. Thou shalt not covet. And I think that positive command is thou shalt be content. In this passage uh, in Deuteronomy, it's telling us what not to desire. Neighbor's house, ox, his wife. Think about uh, an Israelite hearing this, okay? He just heard the Ten Commandments, and then he sees his neighbor coming home with this pretty little thing on his arm and thinks, I wish she were my wife. Okay, no, 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 no. I, I I can't do that. I'm not supposed to want my neighbor's wife. Okay, I just won't want her. I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't. Cool. But what is he supposed to do instead? Well, he's supposed to be content with his wife that is home. Or perhaps he's supposed to be content with the state of singleness that God has ordained for him. Contentment is submitting ourselves, our wills, our desires to God. And recognizing that he is wise. And our condition, our situation, is ultimately ordained and willed by him. Jeremiah Burroughs, he's a Puritan writer, he defined submit this way. He said submit can be defined as to send under. So submit means to send under. He says that the man who uh, puts his idols above God, he's ultimately telling God to submit to him, to send under him. But the Christian who is submitting to God would be submitting, sending themselves under God. Think about an accompanist for a singer, or the band for the vocalist. You're going to this concert, whatever it is, and most of the time you're not there to hear the instruments, or the instruments, maybe not as much as you're there to hear the vocalists. The instruments need to send themselves under the vocalist to say, okay, this is more about you. Um, I'm going to support you. I'm going to play in such a way that your voice is in the spotlight. And if they don't, the whole concert just can go very, very badly, and you can't understand the singer. We are the accompanist. 
we are to send ourselves under God and say, okay, this is about you. Your will in my life is supreme. I will do what you want and be content with what you have ordained for me. Now, you may ask rightly, so then how can I ever desire in a non-sinful or idolatrous way? Am I just supposed to sit back and say, this is God's will? I'm never supposed to better myself? I'm never supposed to want anything? Well, no. But I think we have to think about the thing that we want and what our desire is. So are you content with what you already have? Would you be content without this new thing, this new person, this new um, job? Is pursuing this thing, will it not cause sin? Will it not cause sin in you or in someone else? And is this thing not an idol to you? You pursuing this thing, are you not going to set it up as an idol to God? Well then, enjoy. Rejoice in the good things that God has given you and brings your way. But... If you cannot be content without this thing, if pursuing this thing, having this thing will cause you sin, cause someone else sin, or if it is an idol for you, then repent. Turn away from that thing and turn back to God and find your contentment in Christ. Let's look at this passage one more time in Deuteronomy. And just think about how it could practically affect us today, all right? Um, If you want to have it out while I look at this, I'm not going to read it, but I'm just going to go through it. So, first, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Do you idolize your significant other? Are you pursuing someone who belongs to someone else? Do you constantly compare your husband to your friend's husbands, wishing that he had their body their sense of humor, their personality, their work ethic, then Christians, submit. Submit your relationships, your marriage, your singleness. Submit it to God. He is our friend. He is our brother, and we are his bride. He wants to have a relationship with you that is more intimate, that is deeper than any other relationship you have. And you know, one day, our earthly marriages will be no more. But our greater marriage will endure. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Are you bitter about the housing situation that God has ordained for you? Are you obsessed with your home having the perfect Instagram aesthetic and the one that everyone else compares theirs to? Do you wish financial ruin on the couple down the street that lives in a Victorian house that is so beautiful, wishing that it would just foreclose and then you could buy it for a super cheap rate? That's not based on a true story at all. (laughs) Submit. Submit me. Submit all of you. Submit to God, your needs to God. Submit your living situation to God. He is our refuge. He is our strong tower that we can hide ourselves in. Beautiful homes and lovely dwelling places, they are good, but they will not last forever. Our satisfaction can only be found in the one who prepares a place for you in his father's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's servant. Do you just constantly think about your friend's new refrigerator that has those schnazzy little pull-out drawer freezers? (laughs) Think about that every time you open your old fridge. 
Do you gossip about that person in your friend group who's better at you than something or more knowledgeable, hoping that you can pull down their reputation so everyone else will think of you as the expert in this area? That wasn't about houses. I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. We'll come back to that. <laughs> um, are you bitter at your friend, your well-to-do friend, who maybe they can hire a, a, a housekeeper and you can't, and you struggle every day keeping your home clean for you and your family? Well, submit. Submit your needs to God. He took on the form of a servant for us. And not just past tense, he is still serving us at the right hand of the Father. We think we know what we need best, but Jesus intimately knows our need, and he knows what we need. And he intercedes for us and prays for us and for our good. And remember, no matter how many people you serve right now or how many people serve you right now, one day we will all serve each other as we worship the suffering servant. And finally, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's ox or donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Do you gossip about that friend who's better at you than stuff, than, than you, and, and maybe has better stuff than you or knows more about than you? Do you gossip about them, trying to tear them down? Are you bitter that you only have one vehicle and your life is just one of constant waiting and waiting and waiting? Do you kind of despise those people who have a clear career path when you don't? Well, Christians, submit. Submit your desires, your goods, your station in life to God. He is the king of kings. And remember, he owns you as his child. What greater station in life do you need? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he opens the mouths of donkeys to prophesy. He gives you what you need, and he has chosen not to give you what you do not have. But remember, he does not want you to be poor. No. Our Father wants us to be rich. And how much richer are you that have the peace that passes understanding, that has the love of Christ's body, who has the grace that was ordained for you before the foundations of the world? How much richer are you than the richest billionaire on earth? Well, if you made it, through C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, you will see that it all works. All the weirdness, all of the, uh, the last book not seeming to fit with the first, all of that works, even Merlin, all of that works to bring closure to the greater narrative. Our main character, Ransom, he finally returns, and in a mighty way. We see the angel spirits that we originally met in space, they come to earth to help to fight evil, and this battle against evil comes to a head in little old England, go figure with C.S. Lewis, comes to a head in England, and the bent one, that's what the book calls the devil, the bent one is driven away, and all is made right. And hopefully, all of the confusion from the, when you started this last book, hopefully all of that is put to rest and makes sense to you. And if it doesn't, you should read it again. Similarly, I hope that you can see that coveting, this is the perfect conclusion to the Ten Commandments. It's not just an afterthought or a weak prohibition against wanting things. No, coveting is a form of idolatry about wanting other people's things. And it pervades our hearts, turning us from the worship to God. Covetousness finds fulfillment ultimately in outward action, 
It ultimately breaks the other nine commandments. You want something, so you take it or murder someone for it or um, set it up as an idol. It hurts us and others, and ultimately it's a failure to find contentment in circumstances, the things, the relationships that God has already given us. Now I know on this side of glory, we're not ever going to be perfectly content. But we can rest in the work that Christ has already done for us. He's given us his spirit, the spirit of life in us, who empowers us to recognize our idols, our greed, our lust, our covetousness. We must not covet because our Heavenly Father has already given us more than we could ever desire.